sing in the pew with us and thank you for your kindness. Our scripture reading is from Mark chapter 6. I actually turned on the devices. So uh, those of you who have tuned in were a little bit earlier than usual this afternoon. And so we're reading from Mark chapter 6, the first six verses. Well, that's okay. Mark chapter 6. If you're able to stand, we'll read the first six verses, page 1036, if you have a pew Bible. We'll read together, Mark chapter 6, all six verses, first six verses. Jesus went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? They were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk, and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Amen. And God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Please be seated. And we will sing hymn number 127. Never done that before. Turned on the devices a little bit early. So those of you who are tuning in, I hope that you'll sing with us. Number 127. I cannot why, I cannot tell why he whom angels worship, the Savior of the world. I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set his love upon the sons of men, or why as shepherd he should seek the wanderer. To bring them back, they know not how or when. But this I know, that he was born of Mary. When Bethlehem's nature was his only home. And then he lived, Nazareth and labored, and so the Savior. Savior of the world is come. 
I cannot tell how silently he suffered as with his peace he graced this place of tears or how his heart upon the cross was broken the crown of pain to three and thirty years but this I know he heals the broken hearted and stays our sin calms our lurking fear and lifts the from the heavy Yet the Savior, Savior of the world is here. I cannot tell how he will win the nations, how he will claim his earthly heritage. I'll satisfy the needs and aspirations of east and west sinner and of sage but this I know all flesh shall see his glory he shall reap the harvest he has sown some that day the sun shall shine in splendor when he Savior, Savior of the world is known. I cannot tell how all the land shall worship when at his bidding every storm is still. Or who can say how great the jubilation when all the This I know, the skies will thrill with gladness, and myriad, myriad human voices sing, and earth to hell, and heaven to earth will answer, forevermore the Savior of the world is King. Well, we just sang the Savior of the World, the London Dairy Air Hymn uh, tune. You notice the first verse that we sang in part that he lived at Nazareth and labored. And so the Savior of the world has come. Well, this afternoon we're looking into the fact that Jesus went home after his ministry began. It's been about a year that he initiated his ministry, and he now goes home to Nazareth to preach. And Luke records that in his fourth chapter. We'll begin at verse number 14. Jesus returns to Nazareth. What will happen when he begins to minister as the Messiah 
who grew up in Nazareth as a carpenter, carpenter's son, how will his relatives or friends and people that he grew up with who still there are there and maybe in the, the synagogue, how will they respond to his ministry? Luke chapter 4, you remember he now has returned from being tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. And there's a parallel between Jesus and Adam. Jesus is the, the second Adam. Adam is tempted and Jesus begins his ministry with temptation. Adam failed. He fell. He hid from the Lord. He was defeated. But again, notice how Luke describes Jesus after the temptation. How unlike, unlike Adam he was. He is the second Adam from above to reinstate us in his love. Hark the herald angels sing. Look at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit into Galilee. How unlike Adam. He defeated the devil. Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. So he's been in Galilee preaching. But Luke just gives us one or two verses about his ministry prior to returning to Nazareth. He focuses on Nazareth as really, even though Jesus' ministry has been going on for quite a while, Luke wants us to see the sequel to chapter 2. When he was 12 years old, remember he went to Jerusalem and how he showed the example of diligence, asking questions and answering and his heart loved to be in God's house. I must be about my father's house. I must be about my father's business. So now Luke wants to tell us what's been happening for now about 19 years. He returns into, the, into Galilee and he's teaching in their synagogues. Luke's giving us a video. The word taught is in a certain tense that speaks about something that's been going on. It's like Luke is giving us a little video of, of the fact that Jesus has been going from synagogue to synagogue and teaching the word of God. And he's, the Lord is using him to affect people. It says, and he was glorified of all. And now you see the, the tenseness. What about if he goes to Nazareth? Nazareth is about 25 miles to the southwest of the region of Galilee where he's been. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So here is a verse about Jesus' youth, especially since the age of 12, where we previously saw him prior to his baptism. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And Luke is telling us what he's been doing since 12. And what has he been doing since 12? What's been the highlight of his life? And as his custom was, his habit was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. So what has Jesus been doing, especially since the age of 12? He has loved public worship. 
He has been faithful to worship on the Lord's day since we last saw him. At least last Luke recorded him when he was in Nazareth. What an example he sets for all of us. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah's. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and, to re- and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in, the, were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias, or Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving or except Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his ways, and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. (coughs) Jesus goes home to preach. So before the... The 40-day temptation, Luke tells us, recorded here at the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. After the temptation, we don't read that Jesus returned limping, exhausted, defeated, and went into hiding like Adam and Eve. But no, Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And so Luke wants us to see the parallel with Adam, and he wants us to see the development of Jesus spiritually from the age of 12. And we see that he's right on target. He is the Messiah. He is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The Bible tells us in verse 14, there went out a fame 
That's the literal word that's transliterated. The word is fame, a fame. There went out a rumor, a fame of him through all the region round about. His teaching and his preaching and his miracles have affected people mightily. And people are being saved and people are being helped and being healed. Some of these some of this, the effect is certainly with miracles. But it's very interesting when you look at Luke's outline of what Jesus is doing. He gives us a three-point outline in chapter 4. Matthew tells us, this gives us the same outline in one verse in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. He said, Jesus went about all the cities teaching, preaching, and healing. Notice the, uh, the, the order. It's not healing. Healing seems to, people want healing to get people's attention, but it was his teaching and his preaching and his healing. And that's the outline Luke gives us in this chapter. Look at chapter 4 and verse 15. It says, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Again, Matthew 9, 35 it's the teaching and preaching and healing of Jesus. So you have teaching in verse number 15 and also verse 32. And they were, were astonished at his doctrine, his teaching. His preaching is second, verse 18. So you have fit, verse 15, he taught. Verse 18, he hath, he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. And in verse 19, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, healing is third. Verse 33, there was a man with a spirit of an unclean devil that the Lord exercised or healed. Verse 38, Simon's wife's mother was struck with a high fever and Jesus healed her. Verse 40, there were various diseases that were that were hurled at Jesus and he, and he healed the diseased people. So Luke gives us the same outline that Matthew does. The priority of Jesus was his teaching, not his healing. His teaching, his preaching, and then his healing. People who were healed still died and went to hell. You can be healed of a major disease and doesn't indicate that you know the Lord is your Savior. There's no indication that Jesus only healed Christians, people that were going to heaven. And yet today there's such an emphasis on healing, isn't there? The health and wealth gospel. There should be the emphasis on the Word of God, on teaching sinners and, and preaching to souls to be converted to Christ. People should be more concerned about the salvation of their soul and the health of their bodies because we're all dying. Lazarus was risen from the dead and yet he died again. He had to die twice. So did the, the Jairus' daughter. So did the, the, the widow's son from the, 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 uh, the town of Nain. So did those in the Old Testament that were healed, were raised from the dead by Elijah, and so on. Is your soul saved? 
Are you raised spiritually? Have you been born of the Spirit? Have you been born from above? Focus on your soul, friend. Oh yes, we want to be healed of our sicknesses. We want to get better from from our diseases. But that's not always the will of God. We need to make sure that our souls are ready for eternity. Again, our life is like a vapor that appears and then it disappears like the old like the old tea kettles, the teapots. I can remember visiting my grandmother and she would have a teapot going and, and all of a sudden it would start to whistle, little, little whistles at a time, and all of a sudden, please go turn off the heat. And yet I would watch that tea kettle and I'd see, you remember the, the, little, the little openings that would pop open, the old ones. And I'd see the, the steam come out and then disappear. Our life is like that, or our life is like a grain of sand compared to the the uh, the, the seashore, the the, the uh, sand on the seashore. We need to prepare for eternity to meet the Lord, and so Luke focuses on the fact that Jesus' priority was on teaching and preaching, not on healing. Though he he did heal, but that wasn't his his main emphasis. And so Luke tells us that he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. What kindness. I mean, wouldn't you want to, if, if God called you, whether to preach or just called you into his family, you want to go back to your home. Isn't it the will of God, as he said to one man, go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord has done for you and has had compassion on you. That is normally the, the first thing we want to do after we're saved, to call home, to call dad and mom, to call our brothers and sisters, to visit back home and tell them about salvation. And our hope is that they'll believe. November 1978, the Lord saved me in West Virginia. And first thing I wanted to do when I got back to the dorm, actually not to call back to Syracuse, but I wanted to call all my friends on the sixth floor of Towers dormitory into the middle room and tell them what happened. And I expected them to, to, to receive the Lord just like I did a couple hours before. And it shocked me that they were more interested in watching the Pittsburgh Steelers than believe and to prepare their heart and their soul for eternity. It shocked me. And then I went to my room and no, my two roommates were not there. And I made the phone call. And I thought, well, surely my family will believe. I was shocked about my classmates, my, my, my uh, dormitory floor mates. Not one of them stayed after to ask me more about what happened. They, the two or three that stayed, stayed after said, this isn't the way to make friends, Phil. So I went home. I went to my corner room and called home. One of my relatives said, that's good, Phil, but keep it to yourself. How could you keep something like this to yourself? We want to tell others. So wasn't it right for Jesus? Oh, he didn't have his arm tied to have to go back home. But it shows his love for his friends and his relatives and those that he grew up with. Those that had tables that he made. Those that that had cabinets that he had made. And many believe he wasn't just a wood carpenter, that he was a stone mason. 
that he perhaps made some some uh, um, yokes for the animals in the field. He made he perhaps built stone walls or walls or, or houses that he was more than a carpenter, as the book you know has been entitled. So Luke says. He came to Nazareth when he had been brought up, and we're thinking, if we've not read this before, that, well, he's, he's had an effect in, in, in the towns in Galilee. Surely his town is going to receive him. But how disappointed most of us are when we go back home, when we call back home. They're just thinking, oh, I know who you are. You're the rascal that we grew up with, and, and you're, you're the troublemaker, or you're the, the goody-two-shoes. So many of us are saying whether troublemakers or self-righteous. The Lord saves both. And he humbles the self-righteous and he, and he purifies the troublemakers and the, the filthy ones. So Luke brings us to Nazareth forward first. So will Jesus be intimidated? He loved his friends and family members. We don't know if, if Mary and his brothers and sisters are in the synagogue at this time. He doesn't tell us that. They may have been. You know, we just read earlier that he goes to Nazareth and they said, is this not the carpenter's son and is not this Joseph's son and is not, are not his brothers here with us? Now, many believe these aren't the same, uh, uh, these same time periods. Others believe that he only went to Nazareth once. If that's the case, then, then Mark 6, 1 to 6, and Matthew 13, which also records in verses 54 to following, you piece it all together. It's very possible that his brothers were in the synagogue at this time. So they would have been probably in their 20s, late 20s, perhaps, and maybe his sisters. We're not told that. But certainly, <clears throat> Jesus had a love for souls. <clears throat> he was consistent with his own preaching to go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord has done for you. Again, have we gone home to testify the grace of God? I think it tests our salvation that we're willing to go home and tell people that knew us well, that we love so well, that we won't be intimidated by their faces or by <clears throat> the fact that they knew us before we were saved that we're willing to say, yes, I was wrong. I was a wicked sinner. But Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so perhaps we had, there were people in the synagogue. Now, some people say that Nazareth was only a place with about a 1,000 people. But again, there were people around Nazareth that Jesus met in all those years in the carpenter shop. The people could say, I, I have one of his tables. I have, I have chairs that he made. I have steps that he made. I have stone walls. and I have a chimney that he made. But Luke notices, <clears throat> first of all, that it was the Lord's day. It was the Sabbath day that Jesus visited Nazareth. How kind again that he visited Nazareth close to the Sabbath day. And he was there. He went into the synagogue. And Luke notes 
This was his habit from the very beginning, as his custom was. He's not referring just to the last year of his ministry. He's taking us back to when he was 12 and beyond. And a man put us to the test and he said, I won't believe in Jesus until you can prove to me what he was doing between the ages of 12 and 32. That's how he put it. So back in 1986, I think, 85. And here's a verse that Luke tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was a faithful worshiper, a faithful, godly man. That he, as his habit was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And so we, we learn from example God's word. That we ought, one of the main ways in which, we, in which we keep the Sabbath holy is to be in public worship, forsaking not the assembling of ourselves together. There are people that teach that, that, that think that God has to make it, uh, make it plain, a, pre, a precept, a verse, a reference in a verse about something. Well, he's given us the precept, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But that's not the only way God informs us of truth. Inference. Pray that your flight is not on the Sabbath day, Matthew 24, 20. There are people that say the Sabbath day ended with Jesus' resurrection. But Jesus said, in 40 years, when the Romans take over, pray that your flight won't happen on the Sabbath day. If the Sabbath ended in A.D. 33, then it wasn't going to happen in A.D. 70. And he's not talking to Jews that aren't saved. He's talking to his own disciples when he said, pray that your flight won't take place on the Sabbath day. He's saying in A.D. 70, there will still be a Sabbath day. And there still is a Sabbath day in, in A.D. 2024, brother and sister. By inference, he taught that the Lord's day is still for today. John said in A.D. 90, 20 years later than that, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He's talking about a specific day of the week when he was in the spirit as a prisoner on the island of Patmos. And one other inference, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul said, lay up your offerings on the first day of the week. There's an inference there. Why would he tell them the first day of the week and not the second day and the third day and the fourth day? Because they were meeting as Christians on the first day of the week. He doesn't tell us to lay up our tithes and offerings on Tuesday. We don't, we don't instruct each other to lay up our tithes and offerings on Tuesday here in the box. We're not here Tuesday. But it's the Lord's day that we lay up our offerings and tithes. And then by example, on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, there's an example. They were worshiping on the first day of the week. And Paul, as his manner was, went, into the, went in unto them in three Sabbath days, reasoned with them out of the Scriptures just like his master and his mentor, Acts 17.2. So Luke means to tell us that this was Jesus' habit from his youth, and he continued it on into his adulthood and in his ministry, and so ought we. But now Jesus is not in the synagogue just simply to ask questions and to answer questions like he was at 12. Look, look what... Luke tells us that Jesus does. It says, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and now he stands up to read. Unlike what we read in 
Luke chapter 2, when he was 12, now he takes, he's bold. Now he's, he's indicating something. He's standing up to read. You only did that if you were welcome to do so, if, if people recognized you as someone that could, that had the authority to, to be a, a reader in the congregation. But Jesus, there's no indication that he was asked to do this. Paul, in chapter 13 of Acts, it tells us he was actually asked to stand. But it seems that Jesus just takes the liberty. Again, Luke is telling us what goes on in synagogues at that time. Now, we're used to someone coming up in front of a pulpit and reading, a preacher reading or an elder reading. But in those days, that wherever you were seated, whether it be in the, that the reader was up front or just somewhere in the, in the synagogue, when they stood up, it was an indication that they're going to read the Scriptures. And Jesus is showing his boldness, and it's showing a revelation. I am a teacher. That's what he's saying. I'm a teacher. And he's going to certainly say that I'm the Messiah. And notice again, notice something different. In verse 70, there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now again, I don't want to read too much into this, but it doesn't say that Jesus asked for the scroll of Isaiah. Or it doesn't say that, that the minister said, our reading is from Isaiah today. It simply says they handed him, now not the book like we think, they didn't have a, a book, they had a scroll. So he's handed the scroll, or perhaps the whole book of Isaiah is on one scroll. And they hand it to him. And the amazing thing to me is that, okay, if this is their challenge, all right, you're a teacher, here, let's see you preach from this scroll. Let's see how adept you are with the word of God. You want to be a reader? You want to be a teacher? Here, go ahead. And so all you have, you just see Jesus continuing to roll this and roll it and roll it. Whoa, he's past half. He's past three quarters. He's almost toward the end. What is he going to preach? And he goes to what we know as Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. And, and we know those, those uh, texts about the Messiah, don't we? Turn with me if you could. Now obviously Luke records some of it. Luke also records that Jesus quotes what we know of as 58.6. So I don't know if he turned back or if he did it by memory, but these are the texts that Jesus read, and I don't think it seems that he read any more than that. He wanted them to focus on just a couple verses. So please don't blame us if we only take even one verse when we preach. This morning I preached on one sentence. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And last week, thou shalt, not, um, thou shalt swear by his name. Well, Jesus turned to what we know of as chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He doesn't go on. And so again, please don't blame me if I go halfway in a verse. He stopped there. He did not continue to quote and the day of the vengeance of our God. But look at chapter 58, verse 6. 
I don't know if he turned back in the scroll, if he just quotes this from memory, but he says, Is not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? That's part of his quotation that Luke gives us in chapter 4, in verses 18 and 19. So Jesus was challenged as they delivered him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. No indication that he asked for it. Perhaps they're testing him. Let's see if you can exhort us from Isaiah. And let me challenge us tonight, or today. What if someone asked, gave the book of Isaiah to you or me? Could we speak of Jesus from the book of Isaiah? What if they handed you and me Exodus? What if they handed us Numbers? or Judges, or Hosea, or Obadiah, or Zephaniah, or First Kings, or Thessalonians? What if they handed us Galatians? Could we bring the gospel to a soul from anywhere in the Bible? This is possible indication. We talked about Jesus, how he quoted three verses in Deuteronomy in the Temptation Wilderness. Now he's in the book of Isaiah. And there are many that believe that he memorized the Old Testament. But even if he didn't, we sh- we, we, we're, we're shown that Jesus was disciplined. A man that went to the synagogues. They didn't own their own scroll. They were poor. It was rare for a person to own a scroll of any book of the Old Testament. You had to go to the synagogue where there was one scroll of perhaps maybe even just a several, several books. He had to go there on his own during the week to make time to study God's word and, and, and to, uh, to know the passages about the prophecy of the Messiah. He takes a prophecy of the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. He could just as well have turned to chapter what we know as chapter 9. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Or chapter 11 from the stem of Jesse. Just think of all the passages. Chapter 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. Chapter 7, he was virgin born. All these passages were about the Savior. He quoted the Psalms. He quoted Deuteronomy. He quoted Genesis. We ought to know the Scriptures. It's not just preachers that should know the Scriptures. Oh, if preachers did know the Scriptures. But it's all of us that are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. The challenge was met, and they were astonished. Jesus knew his Bible. He knew his Bible. He knew the Messianic passages. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. It was near the end of that scroll. It wasn't the end, but he found the place where it speaks of Christ. The word anointed is where we get our word for Messiah. He was there, he was the, 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 the Messiah to preach the gospel, to save sinners, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He's saying, it's come upon us. This is the moment that we've all been waiting for. They had Jesus, the Messiah, in their church. Can you imagine Jesus walking into your church? The synagogue was their church building. The people have asked, why didn't Jesus 
complete Isaiah 61-2, the year of the vengeance of our God. Well, there's at least a couple thoughts. He had not come to judge. He had come to save. But he's not saying that they didn't deserve vengeance. As we look at the, 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 the finishing of this story, they did deserve vengeance. He wouldn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. They wanted to kill Jesus. He's in his hometown. He finishes reading two verses that we know and turns back to one more verse in chapter 58 and verse 6. He closes the scroll and he hands it back to the minister. Then he sat down. And that's an indication you're going to preach. There, you look at Bible verses in the scripture and there were times when people sat down to preach. They didn't always stand up. And so we on Wednesday, we sit down at the table in the basement and the word of God is taught. The suspense, no doubt, had taken place. It says that that Jesus, when he sat down, all the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Just let that sink in. They're all just waiting for his application. Why did you read this text? What do you have to say about it? They're all waiting with suspense. Oh, that you and I would be waiting for the Lord to speak to our hearts. As it says, they hung on every word in other passages. We pray, don't we? Open my eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. Speak to me, Lord, for thy servant is listening. So often we can be so ho-hum in listening to God's word. And even the preacher can be so ho-hum in reading and preaching when it's a matter of life and death, growth and backsliding. The Bible says that he began to say unto them, this day, is this scripture fulfilled in your ears? And they all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. So they sense that he's speaking with such grace, such kindness, such a burden upon his heart. They knew they could tell, they could tell his sincerity. They could tell there was power. There was love behind his words. So, now what should they say? Shouldn't they say, please interpret to us? Who is Isaiah referring to here? Do you know the time and the answer when this is going to be fulfilled? Will Jesus simply say, the Messiah is coming? This is just a messianic text, the prophecy of the Messiah. We're all waiting for him to come. He said, no, this day is this, this scripture fulfilled in your ears. It's come to pass. Whoa, they should say, the time has arrived. The Messiah is here. Look no more. The desire of nations is in our church right now. Here we are. Here is salvation at our fingertips. There was a powerful effect just by the reading of the scriptures. Don't underestimate the reading of God's word. Words should be read with worship, a worshipful spirit, with a prayerful spirit. People have been saved by just the reading, I should say just, people have been saved by the reading of Scripture. 
It's a, it's a means of worshiping the Lord. All bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. They were touched. They sensed a spiritual move. So the expected answer is, is not this the Messiah? Are you, are you the Messiah, Jesus? Tell me more. Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. But no, no, it wasn't. Look what they answered. Look what was in their minds. This is just Joseph's son. Oh, the prejudice of man. How often this happens in hometowns. Someone advances. Someone becomes, uh, come and goes to college. Someone gets a degree. Someone gets a good job. Or someone has some blessings especially given to them by the Lord. And there's jealousy. There's There's envy instead of gratitude and thankfulness for God's blessing. Oh, how we all can be affected by jealousy and envy and bitterness. Here was his hometown that had the Messiah in their midst. All those years, he grew up in Nazareth. He was perfect. No one could accuse him of the fear of man, of of deceit, of greed, of unbelief. They had him in their town all those years. And here he was, coming to light as the Messiah. And all they could say was, isn't this Joseph's son? It broke broke the the, the moment. It broke the tension. When it should, what, what should have happened was, tell me more. Save me from my sins. You're the Messiah. Please don't leave us. Please leave a lasting impression upon our hearts. But what broke the tension was some unbelieving, jealous, envious person saying, is not this Joseph's son, a carpenter? What's he preaching to us for? What's he here standing up reading the scripture for? He's one of our own. He's from a poor family. Another passage says, is not this son of Mary? Some of them may have still perpetrated the lying rumor that Jesus was an illegitimate son. Born of a of a woman, only of Mary and not of Joseph, because she was unfaithful. But Jesus perceived their unbelief, and he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And Jesus answers, verily, I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. What does he mean by this? He sensed that they were speaking a proverb. They were, in a sense, fulfilling a proverb. Physician, heal thyself. Well, the idea is, heal yourself first and heal people nearby, but Why are you healing people? Why are you ministering to people away from your hometown first? 
You should have been here if you're really the Messiah, if you really are bona fide. They're demeaning him. They're saying, for one thing, he needs a physician. He needs to be healed first. Take the beam from your own eye, in other words. They're accusing Jesus of being a sinner. And then you can help us take the splinter from our eye. Let me just read you some words, and I know our time is almost gone. Let me just read some words from our brother of the past, John Calvin. He says that Jesus anticipates the objection. And this is the meaning of this proverb. There's no reason to wonder if his countrymen hold him in little estimation since he does not dignify his own country as he does other places by working miracles. And consequently, it is but a just revenge if his own countrymen, whom he treats with less respect than all others, so to speak, are found to reject him. Such is the meaning of the common proverb that a physician ought to begin with himself and those immediately connected with him before he exhibits his skill in healing others. The amount of the objection is that Christ acts improperly in paying no respect to his own country while he renders other cities in Galilee illustrious by his miracles. And this is regarded by the inhabitants of Nazareth as a fair excuse for rejecting him. The answer Jesus gives amounts to this. If you wish to have a share in miracles, why do you not give place to God, whom I represent? Or rather, why do you proudly reject the minister of his power? You receive, therefore, a just reward for your contempt when I pass by you and give a preference to other places for proving by miracles that I am the Messiah of God who hath been appointed to restore the church. And so Jesus says, the reason why I bypass you is because of your unbelief. I'm in my own hometown where I should be received. But such is the state of sinners, is no prophet is without honor except in his own country and among his own people. That's why very rarely the Lord calls a man back to his hometown to preach the gospel. There's all kinds of prejudice before he even returns home. And it should not be a surprise to us that our loved ones reject the gospel that comes from our lips and our lives because they think we're just a sinner like they are, and we are, but that we have no right to preach to them who grew up with us, who know us very well. And the Lord Jesus gives two examples of God bypassing his people to reach others because of their unbelief. Jesus gives the example, and I'm going to have to just close with giving the examples and pick it up next week, Lord willing, of Elijah and Elisha. The Lord Jesus says there were many widows in the days of Elijah the prophet that needed food and needed miracles. But only one of them received Elijah's ministry, and it was a Gentile widow in Sarepta of the town of Sidon, the region of Sidon. And he said, if, that's, if that is, is not enough, there were many 
lepers in the days of Elisha, the prophet in Israel. Many Israelite lepers, but only one leper received the ministry of Elisha, and it was Naaman, the Syrian Gentile. And that was too much for the town. And they did, as it were, what the devil wanted Jesus to do just a few days before. They took him to the brow of the hill. And as it were, now this is in Nazareth, where the devil took him to a brow over the temple, and they were going to cast him down. And as it were, the devil was going to say, now see what the angels would do. But his time was not yet. And the Bible says Jesus just slithered away, walked through the crowd, and here they are looking for him. They all have robes on. But I think it was more than just the fact that he was in a sea of robes. I think this was a signal miracle of his father. He was not going to die before it was time. Jesus was not going to die by, by falling headlong and being crushed at the bottom of the cliff. Jesus was going to die at Calvary to save us from our sins. He was going to die a substitutionary atonement. And we come to the Lord's table today. And I, my thought today is, why not stay with Isaiah the prophet? And we turn to Isaiah 53. And do we not know what's in Isaiah 53? I'd like to read those texts when we sit together in just a few moments. We turn in our books, in our Bibles, to Isaiah 53 about Jesus the Messiah. Not being killed by his, his loved ones, his relatives, by being hurled down from the cliff. And there's a cliff, by the way, still, if you go to Nazareth, the ruins of Nazareth and the, the city nearby, the town nearby, there's a cliff that most likely is the, is the spot where they took Jesus and killed him. But God kept him from dying so that he might get to the cross and pay for our sins. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that our souls are stirred, our hearts are quickened. These are our words of truth. These are words that reveal true history. You are truly the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the Savior of the world. Lord Jesus, please don't depart from us. Oh, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't be sarcastic, Lord. Yes, you were the carpenter's son. You were the son of Mary. You were born of a virgin. You were an exemplary labor. But you are the Messiah. You are the one chosen of God, ordained, anointed to be the prophet, priest, and king. Lord Jesus, please don't depart from us. While on others thou art calling, do not pass us by. Oh, that you would be near, dear to us, Lord. And as we sit and remember your death, we pray that you would be with us, that you would bless us and send us from this place to be light and salt, to point others to thee. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us where we have feared the face of man. Help us to have the boldness that you've exhibited. Oh, Lord, how you knew that they were going to be infuriated 
by your record of history that God bypassed Israel to save what they thought were just dead dogs. And Lord, we are dead dogs, but by the grace and, and saving power of God, thank you for saving dead dogs, making us live, become sheep, sheep in your fold. Lord, please let us keep thinking on these things and meditating upon them. Bless us by them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.